0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Sir Roderick Braithwaite on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Afghansi, The Russians in Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989. I was in high school the year the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan, that being 1979, and I remember reading about it in Time magazine and hearing President Carter talk about it on TV. What I learned from reading and watching was that the Soviets were imperialists and, and the invasion of Afghanistan was part of their plan for world domination. Our response to that was to refuse to go to the Olympics in Moscow. That brave gesture did not bring them around to our way of thinking. You won't be surprised to learn Sir Roderick Braithwaite has written a wonderful book about the Russian adventure in Afghanistan. And there are two particularly enlightening things about it. The first is that it shows that we in the West got the Soviet invasion all wrong. We thought that folks in the Kremlin were dyed-in-the-wool imperialists. Pursuing some long term objective aimed at world domination or something. That just wasn't true. They were scared old men who were trying to deal with a situation which was pretty much unworkable. They wanted to do a lot of different things. They wanted to protect the Soviet Union's border, they wanted to keep the U.S. out of Afghanistan. They wanted to protect their friends and allies. And more than anything else, they wanted to bring peace and stability and prosperity to Afghanistan so they would never have to think about Afghanistan again. We thought the Soviets were evil. Actually, they were just scared and confused. The second thing about Sir Roderick's book, which is really enlightening, is that it shows that these leaders themselves knew they could not accomplish any of this when they invaded Afghanistan but they were prone to catastrophic thinking. They did not want to appear weak, so they had to do something. They could not very well not go to their own Olympics. So what did they do? Well, they followed the same steps that led America into Vietnam. It happened much more rapidly. They sent in advisors. Then they sent in troops to protect the advisors. Then they sent in larger units to deal with political instability. Then the generals asked for more troops. They got the troops. And pretty soon, the Soviets occupied Afghanistan, but they did not hold it. If this sounds familiar to Americans, it probably should, and we should thank Sir Roderick for bringing all of this to our attention, even as we are still today in that place, Afghanistan. So without further delay, here's the interview. Hi, Roderick. Hi, Marshall. How are you today?
1: I'm fine, thanks. How are you?
0: I'm I'm very well, thank you very much. I should tell our listeners that today we have, uh, I insist on calling him, at least for the moment, Sir Roderick Braithwaite. Uh, he has written a wonderful new book called Afghansi, uh, The Russians in Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989. I have read this book with uh, great pleasure and also a certain amount of awe in the sense that it, it covers a lot of ground and it covers it very intelligently. And uh, Roderick was also on the ground, so to say, when a lot of this was happening, so it has an insider's perspective. There are a lot of things to say about this book, and I hope that it's read very widely by all kinds of people—not only here, but I also hope in in Russia. Uh, and it's it's just really a terrific book. I I, I highly recommend that uh, my my countrymen—that is, my fellow countrymen, Americans—go out and read it because you know uh, we we tend to forget this. Uh, while we're uh, busy worrying about elections that won't take place for two years, that we are, in fact, at war in Afghanistan, uh, that this is uh, something we should be thinking about. And this book has some things to say about uh, our current involvement there and also the British involvement there. Let's don't forget that we have allies as well in Afghanistan. So I just wanted to say to Roderick, thank you for writing the book. Uh, my, my first question to you, Roderick, is maybe you could just fill us in a little bit about yourself, just a, a few words about yourself before we talk about the book.
1: Well, I was in the British Foreign Service for the whole of my career. Uh, I joined it in 1955 and I uh, left government service in 1993. And for 10 years, I was directly involved in that period, either in Russia, living in Russia or in Poland or dealing with Russia, the Soviet Union and East-West relations and all that stuff. I did Russian at the university before I went into the Foreign Service. I didn't know the language. And my wife also knew the language when we were there, which meant we could get around and talk to people, which makes a huge amount of difference if you're trying to understand a country. Uh, I also served in Washington and in uh, Poland and Italy and other places. And after I left um, the public service in 1993, I did a variety of things. I come from a musical family, so I was on the board, not-for-profit boards of a couple of Mm -hmm. musical institutions – I worked as an advisor to a bank. I didn't understand that they would do what they were doing, but I discovered a couple of years ago they didn't know what they were doing either. So that was, in a way, in a way, an enlightening experience. And I've also been doing uh, a fair amount of writing, either in, in journals and newspapers, or uh, this book, Afghansi, is my third book about Russia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's my general background. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, tell us how you uh, came to write Afghansi, the Russians in Afghanistan.
1: Well, I I wrote it for three reasons, really. I was myself in the Foreign Office and dealing with the issue when the Russians went into Afghanistan and I was involved in uh, putting together some of the rather effective propaganda that you Americans that we put out and I was in one of the <laughs> earlier conversations uh, with various allies about how we might get weapons to the mujahideen the, the uh, guerrilla fighters in Afghanistan and so looking back at that whatever it is 35 40 years later I thought I'd better see what had actually happened as opposed to what we were telling the world had happened mm-hmm. and of course there are lots of myths as there always are about Historical events, especially recent ones, and there was a lot of cu- Cold War propaganda still hanging around. So I wanted to sort that out. That was the first reason. Second reason was that I was, having lived among Russians and having decided that they were human, actually <laughs> rather rather like us, I thought I'd like to, I'd like to, um, I'd like to try and find my way into the thoughts and feelings of the people who are involved in that war I mean the politicians who took the country into it and took it out again the generals the soldiers the aid workers there are a lot of nation builders went in to try and build Afghanistan rebuild Afghanistan Soviet uh, doctors and agronomists and university teachers and women, and I wanted to find out what they felt about all that. And I wanted to find out uh, what their families felt about it, what the people they'd left behind in Russia thought about this war that was going on. So that was my second reason. My third reason is one that isn't really very, perhaps, very obvious in the book and is not particularly relevant to the subject, but I grew up as a small boy in the Second World War. I used to stick flags in maps uh, as the war surged backwards and forwards across the continents. And I was always fascinated and still am by what it is that makes people go to war and what the experience of being at war is like. And I thought this writing this book would be an opportunity to get some of that out of my system. So it's also as it were, a private concern, not really readers don't have to bother about it Um, an attempt to come to grips with the meaning of war the book is definitely not about something you have touched on it Uh, I didn't write the book in order to draw parallels with what's going on in Afghanistan today Um, that wasn't my purpose, uh, but of course there is a war going on in Afghanistan today and there are parallels and although I don't in the book set out to draw the parallels and the lessons, uh, readers can do that. There are parallels that the reader can pick up for themselves. So that's why I wrote the book. Uh, now, um, as I say, it was it's, it, an attempt to an attempt to see that war from the Russian point of view. And so the book is based primarily on Russian sources.
0: Mm-hmm. I was gonna ask you about of the sources, I, yeah.
1: Well I mean of course of course there are lots of good things written by Americans, by Brits, by Pakistanis, a whole lot of people have written about the war, but I wanted to to show the Russian view of the war. Mm-hmm. And there's quite a lot of stuff around, a surprising amount of stuff around. There are lots of documents, official documents which seeped out of the system, out of the archives, at mostly at the time uh, of the collapse of the Soviet Union when the archives were pretty open and people could get into the archives and get documents and I regret to say archivists, who some of whom were starving, were also selling documents. Mm-hmm. So quite a lot of documents got out. Um, on the various phases of the war, the decision to go in, the decision to come out again, quite a lot about the fighting and the politics, um, the only Gap, and it's an important gap, is that the, there are very few KGB documents. Um, the KGB played a great role in the policy making as well as the execution of policy during that war, and it's not well documented. Now, uh, Western historians get all sort of cross and they say, and the KGB haven't even opened their documents yet. <laughs> well, the British Secret Service has still not opened the files. Uh, about what they were up to at the time of the Russian Revolution. (laughs) So, I mean, secret agencies on the whole don't publish their files. Mm -hmm. Uh, To do the Russians justice, actually, uh, they've published a lot of uh, the uh, secret police files up to the death of Stalin. There's a lot been published, Mm -hmm. much more than our people have published. But, of course, that's not relevant to the Afghan war. So that's Mm -hmm. a gap. On the other hand, a friend of mine has just written a book Russian friend uh, about the 18 months leading up to the Russian invasion mm-hmm. where he's drawn very heavily on basically witness accounts by KGB officers of what was going on in Kabul and it's very interesting and I think that process of, of, uh, of um, as it were, stuff coming out will continue which means, of course, that no book as always with history. No book that's written ever, any given moment is ever definitive because somebody comes up with some new evidence. Um, And there will be more evidence. So that was the documents. Then, uh, of course, lots of people have written memoirs. The generals all wrote memoirs in the way generals do when a war's over, uh, to prove that they were right and the other generals were wrong uh, and the politicians were wrong. Uh, The politicians have written their memoirs to prove that they were right and then lots of Quite ordinary people, aid workers and journalists and soldiers, quite junior soldiers, have written their memoirs. And quite a lot of this stuff rings true. Obviously, you have to treat it with a critical critical mind, but you can sort it out. Much of it rings true. And there's an odd category which I found useful. Some of the soldiers, quite sergeants and people like that, wrote fictionalised memoirs and that's of course a rather suspect category but I've talked to soldiers who served with them who say that they are pretty accurate. Mm -hmm. You just have to bear in mind that they're not literally true. Mm -hmm. So that's the second source. The third thing which is interesting in all sorts of ways was the internet. In the last five, six, seven or years, the Russians have taken to the Internet like ducks to water. (laughs) And a surprisingly large number of Russians, 20% or something like that, have access to the web. And that has all sorts of important meanings. It means that uh, you get a lot, for example, of oppositional blogging going on. People who don't like Putin say on the web they don't like Putin. From the point of view of the veterans, however, the important thing is that it enabled them to, first of all, to get it simply to get in touch with one another. They left the army and went back to a huge country which was falling apart and lost touch with one another. Now they can seek out one another on the web. They can also – they also write things. They write their memoirs. They write stories. They write uh, critical essays. And so there's a huge amount of actually very useful material, as it were, for the historian – but also for the veterans themselves it was a it's it's been a sort of catharsis they've been able to unload some of the some of the psychological psychological neuroses they brought back from the war they can they can work it out through the net and one of them told me himself that that it has that effect they can they can it's a sort of therapy so that the internet's very important from all sorts of points of view but also because it was a useful source and then, of course, interviews. I interviewed quite a lot of people, and uh, you get you meet these people because you you meet somebody, and he says, "Oh well, you know," but you should talk to Ivan. And you go and talk to Ivan. He says, "But you should talk to Dmitry. And there's a snowball effect, mm-hmm. and you meet all sorts of people. I mean, all sorts of people I didn't meet when I was ambassador in Moscow in in the late 1980s. Ordinary people doing quite ordinary things who were private soldiers, uh, sergeants, or whatever junior officers during the war or aid workers or journalists and so that is valuable and it's also a great pleasure mm-hmm. uh and, and there was a particular category of people I met one or two of uh, and these these are the people what the Russians call bards these are uh, it's a, it's a it's a phenomenon in russia all Russians write poetry to start with a lot of it of course very bad, but they all write poetry <laughs> and quite a lot of them sing it, put it to music, sing it to a guitar. And a whole, a whole literature of soldiers' songs grew up in Afghanistan. Uh, and uh, that's quite indicative as well of the moods. The mood changes. You track it through the songs. How the mood starts by, you know, it's all boy stuff about how we stormed the palace and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. And then it gets more and more gloomy. As the war goes on. And I met some of the people who, who wrote and sang those songs. So that was an interest. I was afraid, talking to these guys, that they would think of me as an imposter. You know, here's this foreigner. He may have done national service in the British Army, but he's never been in a battle. And who does he think he is asking us these questions? But that wasn't their reaction at all. They were very glad to talk. And, uh, and the first reactions to the book have been positive. One of, one of them, I saw quite a lot of said, you've, you've told the story from the soldiers' point of view. Mm-hmm. The generals may not like it, but I can tell you the soldiers will. So that was pretty good news. Mm-hmm. So that's the sources. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a rich group of them, I have to say that. I always uh,
0: envy people who write history and get to talk to the participants. Uh, my specialty was several hundred years ago, so well, they're it's, all dead. It's,
1: it's, it's harder then unless you believe in uh, <laughs> table wrapping or something no, like
0: that. No, I've not, not been able to go back. No, not at right. all. So uh, why don't we talk a little bit about these uh, several groups that you uh, mentioned in the book and their uh, involvement in and reactions to the war. One of the uh, chapters or sections that I found most interesting was it was actually the, the, the first couple, I guess it was, uh, in which you talk about the decision – to uh, invade, and I want to put invade in air quotes because it, it sort of happened in stages, invade Afghanistan, and you you actually seem to kind of get into the Kremlin and we meet some of the leaders, and uh, I'll just give you my impression that instead of being um, kind of genius imperialists, they were a lot of scared old men who were confused. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the decision was taken to to invade
1: Afghanistan in 79 and who was involved? Absolutely. I mean, first of all, I think they were old men, and some of them certainly confused, but the decision-making process they went through is, I can promise you, perfectly recognizable. I've seen it happening in London and in Downing Mm -hmm. Street. Uh, Decisions are not taken in the way some people, and even some historians, uh, think they're taken. They're not taken in an orderly fashion. They're not taken all of a sudden. They're taken over a period. And on the whole, I mean, I always say decisions aren't taken. They're what's, they happen to people. <laughs> Things change. The information is inadequate. Something's got to be done. You know, there's a deadline to meet. And you say, well, tail with it. This is what we're going to do. Mm-hmm. And that's roughly what happened with the Russians. The, 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 the process started in April 1978 when there was a communist coup in Kabul. Our propaganda said it was masterminded by the KGB, but as far as I can tell, it wasn't. It took everybody, all the Russians, including the KGB, by surprise. And the communists who mounted this coup were a very small group of people. They were split amongst themselves, uh, a split which... Turned really nasty. They started killing one another. And when they took power, uh, they killed the previous president and all his family, and they then started killing a whole lot of other people. Uh, Now, the Russians, of course, in the circumstances of the Cold War, didn't have much choice but to recognize a new communist government in Afghanistan. And I should perhaps at this point emphasize that the Russian interest in Afghanistan, their national interest in Afghanistan, goes back to the beginning of the 19th century, Mm -hmm. if not earlier. It's an important country on their vulnerable southern frontier, and they couldn't but take a close interest in it. So anyway, this this gang of thugs takes power in Kabul and starts killing everybody. And the Russians, the Russian advisors, they've got lots of advice there, they say, look, you shouldn't be doing that. And they say, what are you talking about? Stalin killed lots of people. He shot lots of people. It worked like a charm. <laughs> Why are you telling us not to? So they went on doing it. And, of course, one of the consequences of that was, uh, particularly in a place like Afghanistan, a whole lot of people all over the country started to rise up against the communist government. Um, and uh, the, the whole setup up looked nastier and nastier. In March 1979 there was a rising against the communists in the western city of Herat and it was uh, a very bloody rising and it practically the whole of the province came out against the government and the communists in Kabul panicked. They thought they would lose Herat and then they'd lose the next province and before they knew where they were the insurgents would be in Kabul. So they appealed to the Russians to send troops, March 1979. Uh, And the Russians discussed it amongst themselves, the Russian leadership, these old men, and they decided that Afghanistan was of huge importance to the Soviet Union and they would give all the support they could, but the one thing they wouldn't do would be to send troops. And the uh, Soviet Prime Minister, Kosygin, telephoned the Afghan President Taraki and told him that they weren't going to send troops. And what Kosigin said was, I'm quoting, If we sent in our troops, the situation in your country would not improve. On the contrary, it would get worse. Our troops would have to struggle not only with an external aggressor, but with a part of your own people. And people do not forgive that kind of thing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, that was a pretty firm message. Uh, and it was, of course, the right policy decision. But then over the next nine months, months—that's say between March and the end of the year, uh, things in Afghanistan got worse and worse. The fighting inside the communist clique got more and more bloody. And in September, Taraki... Uh, the man that Kosygin had been speaking to was murdered by his deputy, uh, uh, who was called Amin, and Amin, uh, uh, a nasty piece of work, uh, was in charge of the country. Well, particularly Brezhnev, the Soviet leader, who was pretty, he really was pretty old and shaky by that time, but he took it personally because he promised Taraki his personal protection. And then the KGB spread the idea that Amin, who'd studied in New York, uh, had been recruited by the CIA and that he was planning to take Afghanistan into the American camp. Now, that's denied by all Americans, um, and, of course, you can't always believe that kind of denial, but even if it isn't true, of course, in the circumstances of the Cold War, both sides, we did too, believed the worst of the other, and planned accordingly. So the Russians couldn't afford to ignore that risk and decided they had to go in and sort the place out. Uh, And they did that. In December 1979, they invaded Afghanistan. They stormed Amin's palace, and they killed him. Um, Now, perhaps I might read another bit about... That event, the storming of the palace was was a pretty remarkable military feat, Um, and it was pretty bloody, but the Russians were successful. And as I said, Amin was killed, and now this is a a bit out of the book. There are various accounts of how he died. Possibly he was killed deliberately. Possibly he was caught by a random burst of fire. One story is that he was killed by Gulabzoy, who had been given that specific task. When the gun smoke cleared, his body was lying by the bar. His small son had been fatally wounded in the chest. His daughter was wounded in the leg. Watanja and Gulabzoy certified that he was dead, and the men from Grom, the assault unit, left, their boots squelching as they walked across the blood-soaked carpets. Later that night, Amin's body was rolled up in the carpet and taken out to be buried in a secret grave. Once the fighting in the palace had stopped, Colonel Kolesnikov set up his command post there. The victorious Soviet soldiers were dropping with fatigue, but since it was possible that Afghan troops in the area might try to retake the palace... They set up a perimeter defense, their nerves still at full stretch. When they heard rustling in the lift shaft, they assumed that Amin's people were launching a counterattack through the passages which led into the palace from outside. They sprang to arms, fired their automatic weapons, and hurled grenades. It was the palace cat. Now, uh... What, of course, they discovered was that Kosygin's Kosygin's analysis had been entirely correct. The Russians found themselves in the middle of a really bloody Afghan civil war with ambushes and roadside mines and ruined villages and aerial bombardment and atrocities on all sides, both sides. And, of course, the Soviet soldiers had been trained and they were rather well-equipped to fight us in the North German plain. They weren't trained or equipped to uh, fight guerrilla fighters in the mountains. And they didn't do very well to start with, but they learned. Uh, They learned to fight uh, rather effectively, and they, of course, the most effective were the parachute and special forces units who were very good indeed. Now, the cover story that the Soviets put out for this war was that uh, they were going in to help a friendly government to whom they were bound by treaty and decades of friendship, and all they would do was hold the ring while the Afghans sorted out their own problems. They wouldn't engage in any fighting. That was the story. They were going in to give what was, what they called was what they called international assistance, and I'll come back to mm-hmm. the aid and stuff that the Russians did in fact give the Afghans. They gave a lot. But, of course, the news spread very fast once the coffins started to come home. Somebody wrote in 1983, so that's pretty early in the war, long before Gorbachev came to power. He wrote to one of the Russian youth newspapers. He said, when a soldier comes home, the whole village knows. When a coffin comes home, the whole region knows. Mm -hmm. They flew the coffins back home in in airplanes, which the airplanes, the nickname for them was black tulips. And um, and this is another quotation. In order to keep quiet what was going on in Afghanistan, the coffins were delivered to the families at dead of night. It was a futile precaution. On almost every occasion the word got out in advance, and the relatives, neighbours and friends were already waiting when the lorry drove up, the wooden box was broken open and the zinc coffin delivered to the family. One young captain, a helicopter pilot, came to deliver the body of a comrade from the same squadron. When he arrived at the house of the dead man with his escort, several soldiers and a sergeant major, they found an angry crowd. "'Someone punched the sergeant major in the jaw, "'his lip was split, and his cap fell into a puddle. "'The women screamed, "'Murderers, who have you brought with you? "'What have you done with our boy?' "'The men started to attack the soldiers as well, "'until the women shouted, "'Leave them alone, they're just as unhappy as we are. "'It's not their fault.' "'The soldiers unpacked the wooden box "'and slowly took the coffin up into the apartment. "'It was crowded with relatives and neighbors. The mirrors were veiled in black, the women were wailing, and the men were drunk. The captain stood awkwardly in the entrance, kneading the cap in his hands. When Binushov told one of the women that the captain had come all the way from Afghanistan to accompany his dead comrade, she rushed forward. Please forgive us, he was our only son. Now, of course the Russians Soviet government realised that they had made a mistake and their original plan had in any case been to get out of Afghanistan quickly, leaving behind a friendly and secure government in Kabul. That, of course, was much harder than it looked. They had many enemies who were all determined to impede their departure. The Americans were... Out for revenge from Vi- for Vietnam, the Pakistanis uh, wanted a friendly government in Kabul which they could control and which they could use as an ally against India, and both the Pakistanis and the Mujahideen, some of the Pakistanis and the Mujahideen, uh, wanted an Islamist government in Kabul. So, the attempts that the Soviet government made to negotiate, they talked to the United Nations, they talked indirectly to the Pakistanis. They didn't get anywhere. And then Gorbachev came to power. He came to power in March 1985, determined to cut this Gordian knot. And within three or four months, he summoned the Afghan leader uh, to Moscow and told him quite firmly that he'd better get used to the idea that Soviet troops would be out in 12 to 18 months. So that's October 1985. But of course Gorbachev was stuck on the horns of a dilemma of a kind that we're also familiar with. And what he said at one Politburo meeting in uh, 1986 was, we could leave quickly without worrying about the consequences and blame everything on our predecessors. But that we cannot do. We have not given an account of ourselves to the people. A million of our soldiers have passed through Afghanistan, and it looks as though they did so in vain. So why did those people die? Mm -hmm. Well, we've heard that in other contexts. Mm -hmm. So the result of that was that the withdrawal agreement was not negotiated until... Uh, April 1988. Then the chief parties were the U.S. government and the Soviet government, with the Pakistanis and others on the sideline. Um, the Mujahideen refused to take part in the negotiation. It did provide for the Russians to leave Afghanistan in an orderly fashion, uh, which they did over the next year, nine months. Um, of course, it was a huge damage to their prestige and ironically the Soviet Union collapsed Mm -hmm. two years later even before the Afghan government collapsed the Afghan communist government lasted longer than the Soviet government but in a sense the Russians did achieve their minimal aim their man Najibullah, the communist president survived in Kabul for three years after they'd left he eventually fell, partly because his government was undermined by internal dissent, and partly because he was dependent on Russian supplies of food and fuel and weapons. And the Russians themselves, by the beginning of 1992, were bankrupt and, on, in some cases, on the verge of starvation. So they cut off, they cut off those supplies. Mm-hmm. And Najibullah fell. There was an, an absolutely vicious civil war erupted between the various Mujahideen leaders and that, that war was brought to an end uh, by the victory of the Taliban a victory which was welcomed by lots of Afghans including Afghan women who knew what the Taliban were like but mm-hmm. preferred, it to, preferred order to what had been going on mm-hmm. and perhaps perhaps I should just um, make a passing point a slightly frivolous one You've probably seen Charlie Wilson's War, the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, it's quite fun. It's very bad history. Um, <laughs> uh, it's got some moving bits in it, but the idea that Charlie Wilson and his stingers brought the war to an end is, of course, completely false. Mm-hmm. The stingers, these anti-aircraft missiles that the CIA supplied to the Afghan guerrillas, had no effect on the Soviet decision to withdraw. Mm-hmm. That, that decision was taken a year before the first stinger was fired um, and uh, it had almost no effect on the Soviet military performance they changed their tactics they started bombing from 15,000 feet which is uh, what other people do if they're afraid about the aircraft missiles but uh, it does result in more civilians being killed because it's less accurate uh, but it didn't stop them using their helicopters they used them right to the end mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um Anyway, that's the story, really. Um, can you? I'm sorry. They, can, you interrupt?
0: Can, can you talk a little bit about the um, about the experience of ordinary soldiers in the war? You know, we have an entire mythology of this. I don't know if it's a mythology about uh, the, the sort of grunts, common soldiers in Vietnam, and a lot of that was what, what you wrote about the, the Soviet soldiers in Afghanistan was very reminiscent for me of that literature. Could you just talk about what day to day life was? Absolutely. You know, on yes, campaign? I mean,
1: in, in the book, in the book, I do talk quite a lot about the everyday life of the soldiers, the everyday life of the aid workers, mm-hmm. and um, and also the nature of the fighting. Uh, the first thing about the soldiers was, of course, they were soldiers like any other soldiers. I mean, they may have been Soviet soldiers, but their experiences and their attitudes are recognizably similar to those of our own soldiers in all wars, not only in mm-hmm. current 20th century wars. They were, the soldiers were conscripts, very few of them were volunteers, they were conscripts, um, and because anybody in the Soviet Union with any influence would try and usually succeed in ensuring that his or her son was not sent to Afghanistan, the army in Afghanistan, the ordinary soldiers, were came from the poorer parts of the cities and from the countryside, uh, and one... Soviet general remarked sarcastically that we might just as well call them the workers and peasants army like they used to (laughs) during the revolution. They were, from that kind of background, they were um, they were, like most conscripts, they were somewhat reluctant, but they were young and many of them thought they'd see the world and be a bit of a lark and there's no, you know, fighting can be fun, provided it's not you that's getting killed, so they their attitude uh, was not entirely negative. The Soviet army and the Russian army today is a pretty brutal place. All armies are brutal, but there was a system, and still is, of systematized ritualistic bullying in the Soviet army, which could reach horrific proportions. You asked the soldiers, I, I was interested, so I asked the soldiers what they thought of that, and they said, well, of course it's a bad thing. It's partly because in the army, the Soviet army at that point, they hadn't, they didn't have professional non-commissioned officers. They didn't have professional sergeants. They didn't have people who knew how to handle soldiers, and if they needed to take them around behind the building and hit them one, they'd do that. But le- They'd leave it at that. Uh, and so... Um, so the the soldiers themselves recognized that it was wrong, but they also said you probably don't know about British public schools, but in the days when they had beating in British public schools and you asked them what on earth they thought that was going on, then said of course not much fun being beaten, but when you get to the top you can do the beating. <laughs> and there was a bit of that a bit of that went the attitude went on in the so but it was it was a very tough the food wasn't very good. And in Afghanistan the health system broke down. The 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 rate of illness in the in the Soviet Army in Afghanistan was absolutely unbelievably high, and uh, uh, they had a lot of hepatitis. They had uh, cholera. They had all sorts of things which didn't happen in the Soviet Union and didn't happen in the Second World War. The the system broke down in Afghanistan, so it was pretty tough. But but of course, what carried them through was what carried soldiers through. It's the comradeship, the feeling not you're fighting for the great motherland, but you're fighting for your your comrades and the guys in the group and that carried them through and of course the people I talked to were self-selecting I didn't talk to the people obviously who never wanted to talk about that war again and several of the people that I talked to said well those were the best years of my life and you get of course the same phenomenon, you talk to British soldiers in Afghanistan today and a lot of them just want to go straight back uh, it's one of the thing that things mm. that boys do. Um, I think um, you mentioned the Vietnam parallel, and I did ask people about that because when the soldiers went home – and these were boys by then. They were perhaps 20 years old. They went home, and because the war by then had become very unpopular in Russia, they were – sort of spat on in the streets, or anyhow, the moral equivalent. And uh, coping with that, as well as the usual traumas that result from being in a war, was very difficult. And they came back to a country uh, which, unlike America after Vietnam, simply didn't have the resources to look after them properly. They didn't have decent places to live in. They didn't get – there's no GI bill or anything like that. And so they became a sort of lost – well, some people call them a lost generation. That's an exaggeration because the numbers involved weren't all that high. But they were in a in a bad situation in the country that itself was in a very bad situation. They held together partly through their through comradeship. I mean, they looked looked out their old comrades and stuck with them. Their, their families helped them, and so on. And on the whole, I think by now, by the time I was talking them, most of the most of the aftermath had been they'd, they'd come to terms with it. People don't. Some soldiers never come to terms with it. There are still British veterans from the Second World War who are getting uh, grants because of the psychological damage mm-hmm. they're still suffering from. I mean, these things don't go away. Um, there was a, a, a view, of, and I quote a young woman I know, saying amongst the sort of intelligentsia that they all came back as murderers and drug addicts and criminals and rapists. Well, that's clearly not true. The statistics are difficult to get at. How many of them actually suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder and how many of them became drug addicts and incurable drunkards? One doesn't know. There's just anecdotal evidence and there are no statistics. There may be none available at all. They may not have kept statistics or they may be Hiding them, but so so it's difficult to form an overall picture. My guess is that it was worse for them than it was from the returning for the returning veterans after the Second World War. Possibly worse than it was for the Vietnamese veterans who came back to America. But a very similar kind of a very similar kind of phenomenon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Well, I mean, I can say here in the United States, my my uncle fought in Vietnam, and I know that uh, when he came back, uh, I know this is true today because I. Uh, teach a lot of people who are in what we call ROTC, that is they're in uh, officer training, um, that we have an extraordinary system of um, Veterans Administration hospitals here that really afford uh, our veterans um, just uh, every imaginable uh, um, uh, health service. So uh, they're they're well taken care of here. But I also know that in the Soviet case, because I knew some of these Afghans, that they were not well taken care of. And the Soviet Union, they just didn't have the resources to do it. Um, You know, and, and, you know, you talked to many Soviets. This isn't so much true of the Moscow elite. But one of the places they fear most is the hospital because that's where, you know, we have a joke about it in the West. You know, that's where people get sick and die. But in the Soviet Union, especially in the end, it really was where people got sick and died. So they didn't want to go. Uh, so I can I can certainly understand a certain amount of trepidation there.
1: It's uh, well, well, you didn't you didn't have that phenomenon in the United States, but uh, you, you, you know we're all in Europe. We're all godless socialists. You know? <laughs> and uh, when I was going out when I was going out to, to be ambassador there in 1988, I was talking to a friend of mine, a woman who's sort of liberal left from my sort of background, I'd say, and. Uh, We were talking about the Soviet Union already collapsing. And she said, well, at least they did one thing. They provided decent health care for everybody. Mm. That was a myth. Of course they didn't. I mean, they they did in principle, but partly because of the way Russian bureaucracies work and partly – because it was a very is it was a very poor country, yeah. they didn't provide the resources to match the the aspirations, and yeah. you know the, the left in Europe never understood that about Russia. That yeah. most of it was was words. What yeah. uh, what soldiers call bullshit. I'm afraid.
0: Yes, yeah. no, that's right. That's absolutely right. I can remember instances in which I was talking to American historians about uh, the Soviet Union, and I remember one conversation I had. Uh, uh, let's say, at a school on the East Coast, and I was talking to the department about uh, what happens when you get hepatitis in Russia, namely you die, uh, and they didn't believe me. No. <laughs> they were like, no, no, no well, they can't be. <laughs> they can't be, no.
1: And, of course, the, the, this is the this is uh, – we're going a bit off the subject, but this yeah. is the whole – this is the whole thing, what and going back to why I wanted to write the book. When you get to talk to people and find out what life's really like, you find it's different from the advertisement. Yeah, and no. the whole business, why did the Soviet Union collapse? Nobody foresaw it. Of course, lots of people foresaw yeah. it. I mean, we were there in the 60s. It was quite clear the system didn't work mm-hmm. in the 60s. It was clear. You just had to walk around the street mm-hmm. and look and listen. Um, what we didn't know that was that it would collapse in 1991. Yeah, no, that's right. What well, we knew it was going to collapse, yeah, uh, and uh, but people, people believed that what was written on the package. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, what, that's a good way of putting it. Um,
0: I want you to talk a little bit about the uh, Soviet attempts at nation-building, because this is something that we never heard about or hear about in the United States. Um, and again, it, it reminded me a lot of the Vietnam experience. I know that when uh, we went into Vietnam that we were uh, trying to modernize the place, and we sent thousands and thousands of technical workers over there to do various things like – I don't know, build drainage ditches and, you know, purify the water and that sort of thing. The Soviets really mounted a, a huge effort in Afghanistan to to bring the place up to speed, so to say.
1: They did indeed, and it was perfectly conscious, and it had, of course, a, a political dimension, a very heavy one, but it, also had a, it was also partly fueled by a genuine desire to help. The thing that the Soviets had, as compared with us today in Afghanistan, was that they had a model in front of them that worked. They had brought uh, education for women, uh, universal education, uh, clean water, uh, developing agriculture and industry to the Central Asian republics. And the Central Asian republics were inhabited by peoples, some of them very similar to some people who live in Afghanistan. And so they had a model for making things work in places Mm -hmm. like Afghanistan which I'm afraid we don't. We don't have a model for buildings, building uh, a, a Swiss democracy in the mountains of the Hindu Kush. We don't have such a model. Mm-hmm. They did, so they thought it would work. Uh, they sent lots and lots of people over many years. I mean, they started in the 20s providing aid to Afghanistan, and by the 70s before the war started they'd built major roads and tunnels they'd built factories, they'd built hospitals they'd built schools, they'd built university buildings, they'd provided lots of teachers and advisors and so on our propaganda was that it was quite simple, they were, it was a part of the imperial drive, they were simply trying to Sovietize the place well none of our aid, ours included was always entirely disinterested and theirs wasn't entirely disinterested but they did build a lot Um, they discovered these people, and a lot of them were young rather idealistic people who went in to help, that the things that they knew how to do were quite inappropriate a lot of people I talked to had gone in to set up a communist youth organisation in in the villages of Afghanistan and they used to go in and out of the villages, they were unarmed they weren't, uh, they didn't get roughed up or killed but they soon discovered that the Afghan villagers weren't interested in this stuff. They certainly weren't interested in organising themselves into Komsom kadas according to Soviet <laughs> rule books. And it, it simply didn't work. It was culturally in every way inappropriate. Um, perhaps to, I'd, I, to to illustrate partly to illustrate that and partly to illustrate another aspect of the thing, which was the relationship between the Afghans and the Soviets. Before I went to Afghanistan, uh, my Russian friend said, well, when you get there, uh, ask them whether it's better now or better than we were, better when we were there. Well, I thought I knew what the answer would be. I didn't believe them when they told me what the answer would be. And I asked several Afghans. I saw perhaps eight or nine Afghans during the week I was there. And they said, that's a very silly question. They said, of course it was better when the Russians were here. Um, the first person I asked was a boy that came up to me in the street in Kabul to practice his English. He must be 19 or 20, so he didn't know from personal experience. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, the Russians built lots of things to start with, um, and so there was employment. You've not built anything. The (laughs) factories the Russians built don't work because there's no electricity. The electricity doesn't work. Kabul is less secure now than it was when the Russians were here. And so, of course, it was better. I went – I heard that reaction from several Afghans. But one interesting was I went to Herat where where the rising – where the war in effect started, the Soviet war. And I met an, a, a now rather elderly, Mujahideen commander who'd fought the Russians for nine years and then fought the Taliban for four or five years and, uh, until they put him in prison and now is sort of retired. And I asked him the same question. And he said, well, that's that's an absurd question. Of course, it was better when the Russians were here. And I said, but the Russians are much more brutal than the Americans. And he said, no, they weren't. He said, the Russians fought us like honorable warriors hand to hand on the ground whereas all the Americans do is kill our women and children from the air. Now, that, of course, is a totally inaccurate picture of what actually happened. The Russians killed far more women and children from the air than the Americans ever did. Uh, this guy was partly influenced by the fact that three weeks earlier, there, in, the, in that part of Afghanistan, there had been a horrific incident where, when about 90 women and children were killed from the air, so he was no doubt thinking about that. But I came to the conclusion that... Um, when he was talking about honorable warriors, what he meant was that we Afghans, you know, we're used to fighting. When there are no foreigners to fight, we fight one another and we nip in and out behind rocks and shoot at one another and ambush one another and so on. And that's the way the Russians fight. They're recognizable as our sort of soldier, whereas the Americans look like Martians with their flak jackets and their helmets and their Ray-Bans and all the stuff dangling mm-hmm. off them. And so the Afghans found them the Americans, Russians, easier to relate to as people. And the Russians also... There was one soldier I interviewed who'd been a peasant conscript from central Russia and very poor part of the world. And when he saw the Afghans ploughing, he said to me, he said, I recognise they were doing what we did back home. Mm -hmm. They're our sort of people. Now, of course, uh, they spent a lot of time killing one another, but when they weren't killing one another, the... They talked to one another quite a lot. Uh, there, I was told a story by a British officer in Afghanistan recently. He met an Estonian sergeant on an airstrip in Afghanistan quite recently, a rather elderly sergeant because he'd been in the Soviet army in Afghanistan too. And the British officer said, well, what was the difference? And he said, the Estonian, well, in those days we had more helicopters and we talked much more to the local Afghans. And it's true, the, at all levels throughout that war, the Russians were negotiating local arrangements with the Afghans. At the lowest level, the little guard posts that they set up all around the country wouldn't have survived if they hadn't been on some sort of terms with the local villagers. Mm-hmm. And the, the deal was, uh, we won't shoot at you if you don't shoot at us. And if you don't shoot at us, we'll turn a blind eye to your smuggling. Mm-hmm. And that sort of deal would be negotiated by lieutenants, guard post commanders and so on. And all the way up during the war, the Russians were negotiating with Mujahideen leaders. There was a famous hero of the resistance, uh, Masoud, Ahmad Shah Masoud, uh, who became a hero to the Russians as well. Well, they they negotiated a ceasefire with him, which lasted for 18 months in the middle of the war. Secret negotiation. Mm -hmm. So, there was a sort of at least that's what they claim, the Russians claim, there was a sort of human relationship between them and the Afghans, which mm-hmm. which helped a lot. And, of course, we forget that there were a lot of Afghans fighting on the Russian side, or rather the Russians were fighting on the side of one of the parties in mm-hmm. the Afghan civil war. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that surprised me, the soldiers that I talked to, the veterans, go back there. Hmm. They go back on holiday. They go back to wow. the places where they fought, uh, they they um, uh, they meet the people they fought alongside, and they also meet the people they fought against. And they post little films on YouTube. You know, this is where I and my comrades were in oh. this guard post. And you mm-hmm. get a photograph of a film taken on the road to Kandahar. Mm-hmm. And these things turn up on YouTube. So there's a whole lot of sort of human human side to the relationship that i, I didn't realize would be there that's one of the things that i found interesting mm-hmm.
0: i mean one of the things you point out in the book that i think most americans don't know is that you know on a number of levels the the russians were quite well prepared to operate in a place like afghanistan I and mean, first of all from the top i mean they have a great tradition of i, I guess what uh, what you would call we we would call I guess uh, Oriental Studies. They had lots of experts in, in Afghani affairs uh, who spoke the languages and had studied it and lived there, um, and you know. On the second level, they had uh, they already had advisors there and had for years and years, and then finally, many of the soldiers were from Central Asia, so you know they 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 were sort of familiar with the terrain in a way. So and well, I guess I guess one other thing occurs to me too. You know, here's where being from a culture which is uh, in which corruption is a more or less an accepted way of life, here's where it can kind of work to your advantage. I mean, the, the Russian soldiers on the ground knew how to make deals. American soldiers don't do that stuff. They knew
1: how to make deals. They knew how to make deals. They were very often what we would call corrupt deals. Uh, but you're right. And, and the fact that they did have Muslim soldiers, they did have, even in a, an armored fighting vehicle, a crew of five, one of them would be an Uzbek or a Tajik mm-hmm. or something who could speak some of the local languages Mm -hmm. and so that they could get alongside they did have an understanding one guy i spoke to who'd been a major professional officer in command of a transport battalion and he was very he his, his name was ismailov his first name was a, was a Russian Christian name, so he was, I suppose, had a, had a Russian mother and a, and, and, and a Muslim father. But he was very conscious of, of how important it was to respect uh, local customs, and he said if you did that, you could get on with people. If you, for example, if you, you were in a convoy, you had an accident, somebody was hurt or something was damaged, if you got out immediately and negotiated compensation with the locals, that would be that. Uh, if you didn 't some of your guys would end up dead mm-hmm. uh, It was a question of if so so it 's quite different from this picture that one had, and I had two of these ignorant bloody minded brutal Soviet soldiers sort of stamping around all over the place. Of course, they did kick down doors the way soldiers do, and they did destroy villages indiscriminately in the way that happened perhaps it was happened in Vietnam. But there was also a kind of, I don't want to exaggerate, it's a difficult thing really to document or, or, or quantify, but there was a sort of a sort of understanding. And one other soldier I asked him about, this, he said, well, of course, he said, of course, when you're in battle, you know, your comrades are getting killed, all you want to do is kill the bastards. But out of that, he said, I, you know, I used to look at these Afghans playing their fields, I didn't feel any enmity towards them at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a sort of natural reaction as well for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I think so as well. So
0: uh, let's talk just a little bit. We, we're sort of running out of time, but I, I want to hear what you had to say about uh, resistance to the war in the Soviet Union and why the Soviet Union and how the Soviet Union got out.
1: Well, um, resistance is too strong a word. Yes, it, so it is. Too never tried, yeah, is obviously wasn't like, it wasn't like the anti-Vietnam demonstrations in the United States. It was a sort of trickle. Of a trickle of dissatisfaction, sometimes a trickle of strong complaints expressed either either face to face or in letters or whatever, um, which undermined the will of the leadership to continue a war which simply wasn 't delivering anything very useful. Um, they were not going to be able to to uh, turn Afghanistan into a mod- modern socialist country. They were losing people at a steady rate. Their international reputation was in tatters. There seemed to be no point going on. And what's more, this continual trickle of strong criticism from their own people. So it was a more insidious process than in America. It it, it wasn't violent, though there were some courageous people who spoke out against it, like Sakharov and so on, the, the Nobel Prize winner. Uh, who spoke out against it. But in general, they, they realized that this was not a war that was leading to anything useful for the Soviet Union. Gorbachev used the, the letters. He One of his political meetings, he read out letters from mothers and so on in order to convince his colleagues that this thing had to be brought to an end. But then, as I said earlier, the question was, how do you do that? A lot of people are quite happy for the war to go on. The Afghan communists were terrified that the Russians would lead and leave and did all they could to intrigue against, against their departure. So, uh, and uh, the people on the other side of the negotiating table wanted to extract their pound of flesh. So it took Gorbachev – well, it took him three years, which uh, again, if you make the comparison with getting out of Vietnam, it's not all that long. Mm-hmm. But of course, while you're getting out of a place, people go on dying. And uh, right at the end of the war, there was a, for political reasons, a major Soviet offensive mounted three weeks before the end of the war, in which a lot of people got killed, in order to placate the uh, Najibullah, the, the president, who was desperate at the sight of the Russians leaving. So uh, it was a messy departure. It was a departure which Gorbachev believed was conducted in the best available circumstances, and it went wrong after they would left because the Soviet Union went wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, If they had gone on – this is perhaps one of the lessons for today – if they had been able to go on supplying Najibullah with the aid that he needed, perhaps he would have survived. Perhaps Afghanistan would have settled down, but they weren't able to. Mm -hmm. And the lesson, I think, if we're drawing parallels – there are lots of parallels – but one is that when it becomes clear that Afghanistan is a place you can conquer but not hold, which is roughly speaking what all previous mm-hmm. invaders of Afghanistan have discovered, the, the question is then to leave behind, leave and leave behind you a friendly government which can defend itself, which was what the Russians sort of achieved, and our own ambitions now, it seems to me, are reduced to the same. Mm-hmm. If we can leave behind uh, a stable government which can defend itself – Uh, we will have done as much as we could hope to do. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's going to be easy. And one Afghan officer I talked to recently who'd actually trained in the Soviet Union has now just gone back to Afghanistan to command their special forces said much as he appreciated, uh, uh, he was talking to a British audience, much as he appreciated the, the sacrifice of the British soldiers in Afghanistan, his view was that the thing couldn't be sorted out until all the foreigners had left. Mm-hmm. It would have to be the Afghans sorting it out for themselves and the history of Afghanistan and the culture of Afghanistan means that it will not they will sort it uh, out which are not entirely compatible with good and No, democracy. Um, yeah. So that's not a particularly it's not a particularly jolly conclusion to come to. On the other hand the one thing one must wish for the Afghanistan is not democracy and all the rest of it it's a bit of peace and tranquility after 30 years of horrifying war.
0: Yeah. From uh, your lips to God's ears, I hope. Uh, anyway, Roderick, I, I want to no. say thank you very, very, very much for being on the show. Uh, we're, we're just about out of time. And uh, I want to close our interview with our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is uh, what sort of thing are you working on now?
1: Well, I should say two things. First of all, I don't regard myself as a historian. And secondly, I don't regard myself as a writer. I'm a former bureaucrat who's done a bit of writing. Uh, I haven't got a major project. I have a project in mind which I don't think will work. I met my wife in Poland. We were both diplomats in the embassy there. And uh, uh, Poland at that time was going through a period which everybody's forgotten, which was it was a very open country. It was 19... 60. And for a communist country, it was wide open. One of the bits of documentation I've got hold of is the files that the secret police kept on me and my wife. On the Polish. <laughs> <laughs> Under Polish legislation, you can get those. They're not as full as I would have liked them to be. They're no transcripts of intimate conversation or anything like that. But still, there's some interesting bits in it. And I don't think there's enough there to make a book, but I shall use it somehow. <laughs> I, I, I really
0: envy you that. I know that, uh, you know, I, I, I saw someone's Stasi file once, and it was actually sort of boring. So, I mean, I hope that yours is, is more interesting than that. And I'm sure it well, is, oh, yeah.
1: it's are it's interesting bits in it, but one of the interesting bits in it, and I think this is something one must remember about all secret services is how many things they simply got wrong and how many things they invented. I mean, there are things in the farm about me which are simply not true. And, and the guys who invented it, them, they, the story was that they were following me around Warsaw uh, and saw me being handing over a package of money to a guy who handed me a document in exchange. It's quite untrue. What actually happened was that they picked me up as I was leaving my then-fiancé's apartment late at night and followed me. And I thought, well, tell with this. And I nipped. I manoeuvred so that I was following them <laughs> <laughs> I for a while. Then I went home. And they were obviously very cross. So they made it this way. But what the file shows, what the file shows is that they were congratulated for tracking me down to this secret meeting. And they were all say, promoted, but they were commended. Right. So that says so the story had a happy ending.
0: Well, so they really—they really owe you. Then maybe you could run them down.
1: You know, you made their career. I—I been <laughs> trying to find out where they are now. Because I'm, but I'm told that even if you do find them, they're not willing to talk. Yeah. So there you are. But that's a project if you like. I imagine
0: not. Well, anyway, uh, thank you very much for being on the show. We've been talking to. Uh, Sir Roderick Braithwaite today about his book Afghansi, The Russians in Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989. Uh, Roderick, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you very much
1: for having me. I right. enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to an interview with Sir Roderick Braithwaite about his new book, Afghansi, The Russians in Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.